This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Speaking of Asia podcast by The Straits Times. This is Ravi Velour, and I'm the paper's senior Asia columnist. This series of podcasts focuses on issues relevant to Asia and distills experience from my four decades of covering the Asian continent. Today, it is my privilege to be speaking with a journalist and writer with even greater experience than I have, and that is Mr. Nayan Chanda, the former editor of Far Eastern Economic Review and an author of authoritative books on Indochina, including Brother Enemy, which is considered a classic on Cambodia's civil war. The backdrop of our conversation today is the 50th anniversary of the Paris Peace Accords of January 1973, which were meant to end the Vietnam War. Mr. Chanda was in Saigon when the war finally ended two years later. I'm going to take this opportunity to talk to Nain Chanda of what he saw then and the lessons we could draw today from those events amid the tensions that are rising around Asia, particularly East Asia. Welcome to Speaking of Asia, Nain. Well, nice to be with you, Ravi. Now, and you were an eyewitness to the fall of Saigon on the 30th of April, 1975. Could you describe what you saw that day? Um, this is a story that is engraved in my mind, although it was a long, long time ago, because this was truly a historic experience, and the word historic is not an hyperbole. Um, this was on the morning of April 30th. Uh, things have been completely going wild in Saigon. People have been running helter-skelter, trying to find a way to leave this place. Uh, people are looking for buildings where the American helicopters might land to pick up Vietnamese who have authorization to go to the United States. And people who have no connections, they're still running around looking for a way to either go to the port to get onto a boat or appeal to anybody they can see to help them to leave the country. So I was uh, outside the U.S. Embassy, which is almost a fort-like embassy, uh, which was being besieged by hundreds of Vietnamese trying to get inside the compound because the embassy rooftop was the principal area from where the helicopters were picking up people. And I had, I thought it would have been the last helicopter that took off from the rooftop and people outside were still jostling at the gate to get in. And the last Marines who were actually manning the gate, they had disappeared. And that was the signal that maybe the last helicopter had left with those Marines. So I came back to the office, which was the Reuters Agency's office, almost in the corner of the presidential palace. And so I went back to the office and started writing a news item for Reuters agency describing what was happening outside the U.S. Embassy. And also saying that I have been receiving phone calls from 
sources in the periphery of Saigon, in particularly in Chalon district, that people have begun to raise red and gold uh, Vietcong flag in their buildings, which is a sure sign that people have concluded that the old regime is gone. So I was writing that uh, piece when I heard a sort of huge sound through the door open in front of me, open Reuters office, and I could see a tank cross the frame of the open door. And at the end of the tank, there was a red flag limply hanging. And I said to myself, oh my God, they're already here. So I took up my camera, which had a telephoto lens mounted on it. I rushed out of the office, running towards the tank. Then I paused for a while. I said, maybe they might consider the long lens on my camera as a weapon. <laughs> so to make sure that they didn't misunderstand me, uh, my intention. So I kind of waved at the soldiers who were sitting on the top of the tank, and they waved back. And so that was how I established my bona fide as a reporter. And I rushed, run to the tank. And But before I could actually approach the tank, it had crashed the gate of the palace and entered the palace. So I followed the tank inside the palace. And then I ran back to the writer's office to send the one sentence flash that the Vietnam War has ended this morning. And um, so that was the impression of the first few minutes of the end of the war. Wonderful. What made you stay when most of the other journalists had left Saigon? It was a, not a very difficult decision because I have followed the history of Vietnam. My research was on Indochina and for the past 10, 12 years, I've been researching the history and development of Indochina for my uh, thesis I was working on at Sorbonne University. And so I thought I had a stake having studied the history of Vietnam and to actually stay there to see the last act of the drama. And that's what I wrote to my editor when my editor sent me a message saying, and no stories about your life, Lion, we urge you to leave Saigon. And that was about four or five days before the collapse. And I wrote back to him saying, you know, I have followed this for long enough time and I want to see the last act of the drama and it will be my decision and, uh, and it will be my responsibility. This was your editors at Reuters or at the Far Eastern no, Academy? No, Far Eastern Academy. Derek Davis. Derek Davis, yeah. yes. Yeah. Now, in the Paris Peace Accords on Vietnam were agreed in late January 1973, and that is the trigger for our conversation today. Now, why did it take five years for the accord to be signed and a further 26 months for the war to end? I think the accord was signed actually on 27th January 1973. This was the famous Paris Accord where Le Ducto and Kissinger did sign the accord. Mm -hmm. And then it took basically two years 
to complete the agreement that was signed. And, and I think the last um, American troops left sometime in March, in fact. And the, the war ended with the fall of Saigon in 75. So it was essentially two years after the signing of the accord. The accord was signed in 73, and 75 April, the war ended. It took two years because that was the two years in which the Vietnamese sort of ramped up their preparation to actually physically conquer South Vietnam. So one of the things that people may not fully appreciate is that the Paris Peace Accord was basically surrendered by the United States to the fundamental principle that Vietnam is raised was that Vietnam was one country. And that was the first sentence of the Paris Peace Accord. And if Vietnam is one country, it follows logically that people in the North have the right to win the South. And so that basically gave the game away that the North Vietnamese troops in massive number crossing the 17th parallel and and going to South and eventually conquering South uh, was approved by the Paris Accord in the first sentence, which said Vietnam is one country. Were the Americans, after losing how many, 558,000 soldiers or something, were they trying to cut their own losses and leave the fighting to the South Vietnamese? Yeah, that definitely was the so-called Vietnamization program that Richard Nixon launched was to say, okay, we have done our bit, we have shed enough blood, and we will now going to hand over the task of fighting to the Vietnamese. We'll give them all the money and equipment they need, but it is their war and they have to fight it. And that was eventually the sort of beginning of the end, because South Vietnamese, it turns out, uh, did not have what it takes to fight, uh, despite having a lot of uh, guns and, uh, and equipment. Has it ever crossed your mind to compare the American pullout with uh, what President Biden did in Afghanistan two years ago, Noel? Yeah, in fact, uh, when this Afghan pullout was taking place, uh, especially the dramatic uh, video of American uh, military plane uh, taking off and people hanging on uh, from the uh, from the uh, from the wheels and uh, side of the plane. That certainly brought back memories about the disastrous pullout from Danang a few months, a few weeks before the fall of Saigon, mm-hmm. and the rush of people to the Tanshan Nutri Airbase in Saigon, people trying to get into the airport and uh, get into the American plane. But I think that was a pretty lazy, simplistic uh, comparison. It was, it was optical. The comparison was optical. The optics was that the Americans are leaving and people are uh, terrified of what the future awaits them, and they are trying to live with the Americans. But uh, in all other respects, 
it is a very different story. When the Afghan the Taliban took over, they are not the equivalent of the North Vietnamese and Vietnam who took over Vietnam. Mm. And the most important point that, in fact, I have written about that at the time of the Afghan pullout, is the the way the war ended in in Saigon. The Saigon, after the American pullout, the victor, victorious base Congo went around and raised their flag mm-hmm. on many foreign missions which happened to be in Saigon. Okay. But there was no flag raised, uh, at least initially, on the U.S. Embassy. On the U.S. Embassy, okay. And, yeah. And so I asked this uh, Vietnamese uh, communist official at the time, I said, why is it that you have not raised a flag on the U.S. Embassy? Oh, he said, yeah, because we uh, we know the Americans are coming back. And I'm surprised. What do you mean by coming back? He said, the Americans should know, historically, Vietnam is the cork in the bottle, Chinese bottle of expansionism. And they would come back in order to stop the Chinese. And that was the Vietnamese official telling me that on May 1st, 1975. And, and that is the big difference between the Taliban and the so it looks like uh, the Vietnamese have an even longer perspective than uh, what the Chinese are credited to uh, always have had. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, another story I could mention in this connection is that the Vietnamese were convinced that it is only a matter of time the Americans would realize that they are mistake in going to fight in Vietnam because they thought Vietnam was the surrogate of the Chinese. And they were, by fighting the Vietnamese, they are stopping the Chinese expansion. was a complete folly. And they would realize that and they would come back to Vietnam. And so that I have heard from very senior Vietnamese officials that they were convinced. And obviously their conviction was a bit... uh, too ambitious in the sense that they perhaps ascribed more wisdom to the American policymakers than they <laughs> possessed. So uh, it took, I mean, in 1995, when the U.S. embassy came back to Hanoi. And so it took 20 years for the Americans to actually acknowledge the fact that uh, Vietnam, after all, was not a surrogate of China. But the Vietnamese knew it all along. They knew all along, and they have been urging others to tell the Americans that uh, it is now time to be friends because we have the common enemy. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode. You know, when I was growing up, Vietnam was a war, not not a country. And Today, uh, one sees it as epitomizing the Cold War in some sense. Now, do you see a new Cold War around us today in Asia? And who are the new proxies? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the Cold War is 
between the United States and the and the Chinese, of course, and uh, the Cold War premised on the fact that the Chinese system of government, uh, authoritarian and uh, one-party rule, and total control of the country's economy and politics and culture by the government. And that is the model that China has not only practicing itself, but they have been trying to sell that model to other countries. And the United States is just the opposite at trying to sell and sort of champion a model of free market and democracy. And although those have been tarnished by many events in recent years of democratic principles and and free market principles. But still, despite these blemishes, these are the model that America is promoting. And the Asians have been asked to take sides. And the sides, in case of China, I would say they have Cambodia, to some extent Laos, and to a limited extent Myanmar, are the countries which would be more amenable to Chinese influence and Chinese policies. And, of course, North Korea remains ally of China, uh, not necessarily a very easy ally, but China has to uh, live with North Korea because letting North Korea um, collapse would be a disaster for Chinese security. So uh, so that's the situation in terms of uh, lineup in Asia. And what about the other side? The other side have varying degree of support for United States, Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Philippines. Now, particularly this week's uh, special agreement to have four more bases, American bases in the Philippines, is a major development showing the still strong American clout in the region. And other countries, Indonesia, Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, they all are wary of the Chinese, but at the same time, wary also of an open um, sort of siding with the United States against China. So they have set up somewhat ambiguous position. So you, you, you were in the region uh, traveling through two months ago, and I had the privilege of meeting you here in Singapore at that point. Now, after your travels and, uh, you know, as part of your constant study, do you see the possibility that Taiwan could be the next Vietnam? Next Vietnam in the sense of a, a conflict which pits China against the constellation of the West, yes. But other than that, there is very little similarity. First of all, you should remember that in South Vietnam in the 70s, it was a war that was sustained by the United States wealth and military power, which constricted army, which was mostly reluctant to fight. They were um, not being paid, they were deserting, they were selling their weapons. And it was a pretty dismal picture of the South Vietnamese army facing 
the Northwest families and the communist bloc. In Taiwan, there is a most important difference is that Taiwanese are overwhelmingly for Taiwan remains separate from China. And when recently, when the Taiwan government extended the compulsory military training from four months to one year, the polls showed over 70% people supported that. Even 70% people wanted to have a longer training. And that fact is in sharp contrast with the deserting South Vietnamese army. Uh, you know, so uh, it, it is a, a parallel which is not very accurate. That's fascinating insight. Thank you for that. Are there lessons that uh, we could draw from the Vietnam War that could help us uh, avoid a new conflict in Asia? Yeah, the, the lesson has been very clear from the beginning. The lesson is that one can ignore nationalism at one's own peril. Nationalism still remains a very potent force. Otherwise, it cannot explain the resistance that the Vietnamese put up against the world's mightiest superpower and succeeded in defeating it, not perhaps in the battlefield, but overall the war was won by the Vietnamese. That's a fact. And now look at Ukraine. Again, you see the force of nationalism, that a tiny Ukraine is actually standing up to the behemoth Putin's Russia and fighting. Of course, they have the support of the West, which is very important, but ultimately they are fighting the war. Mm -hmm. And this is their determination mm -hmm. uh, to remain independent uh, is a, the most important factor in my view. I see. Now, having watched the dynamics of the Sino Russian ties during the 1970s and thereafter, how seriously do you take the current partnership between the Russians uh, and the Chinese? And what do you think are its implications? This is a shotgun wedding, I would say, because... Did you call it a shotgun wedding? Yeah, because it's, uh, it's simply deciding to show to the Americans that we are not accepting your policy and we, at least morally, we are with the Russians. But there are ample evidence that Chinese are extremely wary of getting too deeply with the Russians because they are, I think, increasingly aware of the weakness of the Russian system, weakness of uh, Russian position, and the consequences of a Russian sort of collapse on China would be pretty disaster. Mm -hmm. So that is why, on the one hand, they don't want Russia to collapse, and that is one reason why they are in this shotgun waiting to basically tell the world that, you know, we are not abandoning Russia. At the same time, Russians are being not uh, being supported. There are so many ways Russia could have been supported by the Chinese. But Chinese are holding back. So I think Chinese are in a pretty difficult position, seeing the trouble that Russia is in. I see. 
Fifty years ago, there were essentially three big geopolitical players on the Asian scene, and they were the United States, the Russians, and China. Do you see newer big players today, and what are they up to? Well, the big players in, uh, in, the, in Asia, of course, is Japan, South Korea, and India. And India's problem is that India's economy is the kind of weakest point of this time in history. And without a strong economy, India's potential to be a stronger military power is very limited. That is my view. Japan has come to the party late, but showing great uh, determination and courage to actually abandon their existing taboo anti-war feeling, and they are uh, taking positions which are would have been unthinkable uh, two, three years ago. No, I, I understand now you're about 74 years old, if, am I correct? Uh... You want me to tell my age? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm actually, I've turned 77. Oh, you turned 77, okay. Yeah. Do you think, and I'm including myself in your in your bracket in some ways, do you think there might be another big Asian war in our times? I certainly hope not, but the hazards of that happening is actually growing every day because of the increasing hostility and extent of this hostility you know, going into economic and technological sphere makes it even more dangerous. So I, I, what I have in mind is the, the recent American policy of banning sales of certain technology to China and including barring Americans or American residents, permanent residents, from working for Chinese companies. And that is kind of a very, very strong decision which can only hurt Chinese defense industry and technology sector. And uh, so that of course, for, makes the Chinese step up their effort to develop technology that the Americans are trying to deprive them of. And, and almost every day, there is something or other happening which kind of increases the tension between the two countries, uh, which, which is uh, very worrisome. That's a very sobering note to end this wonderful conversation with Nayan Chanda, the eminent journalist, editor, and scholar. Noyan, thank you so much for appearing on Speaking of Asia podcast. Thank you, Ravi. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This is Ravi Velour, and I shall be back next month with the next Speaking of Asia podcast. That was a podcast by The Straits Times. Send your feedback to podcast at sph.com.sg. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. For more podcasts by The Straits Times, The Business Times, and Money FM 89.3, you can also download the audio by SPH app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O.